Hey everybody, it's been a while since I've sat in front of a mic and talked to people. Um, well, let's just let's just jump right into it. Um, years ago, I started working on a podcast, and one of it was going to be a million different things, but it got real serious real quick, and it's sort of because of this interview which I'm about to play. And one of the one of the rules we had for Alpine Strangers was how do we tear down sort of like the grand pomposity of video stories and just tell things, you know, like we would talking face to face or person to person. And I'll be honest, I have struggled with this story for years trying to figure out how to tell it. There's literally so many ways it can go. It's it's about the part of it is about me not paying attention to what a insanely special place that I grew up and some of the people that uh, helped build me up as a kid. And one of those people was Harrison Roper. Now, Harrison Roper, um, he taught me, uh, not piano, uh, but he did give me some piano lessons too, but mostly brass lessons. And he wanted to do it for free because he did not want to pay uh, taxes that could possibly go towards war. He was a Quaker. Um, And one of the strongest lessons he ever taught me uh, was when I was acting in Huckleberry Finn, and he had to explain to me, and I was in uh, sixth grade at this time, he had to explain to me what it meant to Huckleberry Finn to realize that he was afraid of going to hell for stealing a person and that it was someone else's property. And that was the moral conundrum here. And it wasn't about should he set Jim free because in his heart, he, he'd already made that change. However, you know, there there was still that lesson in him that he was trying to do good and he didn't want to steal a person. And that's, I mean, it's just, he made me understand that. And I never really understood why. And then, Years later, he wanted to meet my wife, Christina, um, and we were in town. So we went over and he pulled out the videotape of Huck Finn and was showing it to me and Christina as this surprise. And I generally hate watching my old work. (laughs) Yes, I'm talking about my sixth grade play as though it was like, you know, I don't know. It was an important thing to me, though. And... One of the things that came up in that conversation, he just sort of mentioned to me, oh, but my dad's book just got republished. And I was like, wait, what book is that? And he pulled out The Tragedy of Lynching, which is a book I had read at Emerson College in a multiculturalism writing class. And he very graciously offered to let me interview him the next time I was home. Uh, And... After I had this interview, which is the first interview I had did or I had done for the podcast 
And I was just astounded, and I always wanted to do right by him. And I think I've done it just now because I wanted to just talk and see what happened. And I don't know. This guy, and here's a funny part too. Right after I got done with this interview, I erased it off my new recorder. And I somehow managed to save it with this file recovery software. And so I've cut it up a million ways and tried to do it a bunch of different ways. And you know what? I want you to listen to it and decide what it means. Because I think today, given the events of the last few years, it's so much more important now than it, it was even at the time he shared this with me. Thank you so much for your time, Mr. Roper. Uh, you, you were a big part of making me who I am. Love you, man. All right. So, um, but anyway, kind of go back to some of the questions I had about your dad. Yeah. Um, I was reading in uh, one of the, there's a guy that wrote a biography of your father called Southern Modernist. It's right here. Oh, is that it? Oh, no. I'm sorry. I have it here. Have you, have you read it? or? Oh, yes. I, um, I do have it somewhere. Well, maybe it's upstairs. But his name is Mazari, M-A-Z-A-R-R-I. Yes. Um, but some of the, one of the things he mentioned a lot about was there's a, he did a lot of radio broadcasting. Um, I'm not sure it was radio. He had a lot of tapes. I have them upstairs here. Yeah. A lot of reel-to-reel tapes mm-hmm. that he did. He wasn't overseas making radio programs or anything like that. But he, he made tapes uh, of lectures that he was, he was giving. I'll tell you what was happening. He was working for the State Department. Mm-hmm. And he was uh, giving lectures and talks with slides. Uh, you know, ordinary... Sl- we have the slides upstairs, too. Yeah. But uh, with slides of what it's what it's like to be in a certain country. Yeah. Have you heard of Point Four? Uh, this was a government, a, no. a federal government program. It, Point Four was some legal, uh, uh, legal designation of it. What they were doing is sending over Americans overseas to do good things, not to fight wars. Yeah. But like agricultural advisors and mm-hmm. civic government advisors and stuff like that. Yeah. And he really believed in that. He, he, go all, he goes all the way back to when he was young, and they were beginning to invent uh, government programs that we have now around us. Uh, I can't think of, of, what, of what the term is, uh, but the state of Maine has people to give farmers advice. You know what it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what the name of the program is, but I know... Yeah, but it's supposedly expert advice from the academic world right. to the ordinary farmer. Yes. Well, right now, ordinary farmers are very knowledgeable people. Yeah. But this was, again, many years ago when he started, when he was doing this. This was like in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. It's at the end of his professional life. And... and uh, Extension agents, that's what they're called. Oh, okay. Extension agents. And he was talking to people that were sort of going to be extension agents uh, coming from the scientific and academic world 
to help out with agriculture and rural life in the rest different parts of the world. Yeah. And he was giving lectures in Washington to people who were going to go do that. Uh, and remember, he mentioned one thing, that some of these people came through uh, Mrs., I'll call her Smith. They came through Mrs. Smith's office, which was someplace downtown. And he never did learn much about them. I think they were in training for the CIA. Uh -huh. So, But he didn't pry about that. He just gave them the same lecture he gave everybody else about, say you're going to, well, Afghanistan was one of the countries. Mm -hmm. Say you're going to Afghanistan, and he's there to tell you something about the tribal nature of Afghanistan and the fact that the agriculture only happens, most of it is desert mountains, yeah. but there is agriculture down in the valleys where all that soil washed over the centuries, and they uh, irrigate that, and that's where they grow things. Mm -hmm. um, and so how, how did I get into this? Well, I was asking about the uh, broadcasting. Well, the oh, reason yes, that's why he made those uh, all those tapes. Yeah, it's, they well, were done for the State Department. Uh, Mazari uh, mentioned. Oh, where was? It? Oh, yeah, yeah. The roots of he mentions the roots of the nineteen sixties TV coverage of the Selma marches has roots in uh, Raper's work in the thirties. Yes. So like it was t t uh, the chapter was about like mass media stuff he was doing. There there is academic interest now, and I run into it not just from Mazzari, but from other authors that uh, that they're paying attention to to the the kind of thinking that went into the civil rights that preceded the actual civil rights marching. Yes. And he is recognized as one of the pioneers. Within the white community of the South, mm -hmm. he, was, he was of the pioneers who were willing to deal with the issue of race. And he, did, he, did, he started out in criminology. And uh, with this book that was published, I have a copy of it here, The Tragedy of Lynching, that was published the year I was born in 1932. He was a criminologist at the time and some outfit I think some liberal think tank in Atlanta hired him to go around and find out the inside story to the extent that he could of the lynchings that were happening, peaking off in 1930-31. Yeah. And all that had all happened within living memory in this and that town in the South. And he would go to that town. This was while my mother was home waiting for me to be born. Right. <laughs> and he would go to that town and he told a story, Nathan, that he still cannot stomach Coca-Cola and bananas at the same time. Yeah. But he would go to a town and buy a Coke and buy a banana in the local store and chat with people because he was a Southerner. He was in the South and he was from North Carolina and he sounded like a real Southerner. He was a Southerner. Mm -hmm. And uh, he would just express some curiosity in this incident that happened last year about that uh, black fellow that had done such and such, whatever. And somebody who was sort of the functioned as a local taxi would be very happy to drive him to where this had happened and describe it to them. Yeah. And these were people who knew all about it. A lynching. Yeah. They'd maybe been there. 
And uh, you've seen the pictures of the women and girls in cotton dresses looking at the corpse. Well, he was right there a few months later in that site. They knew exactly where it had happened. And he was hearing about all this awful stuff. So anyhow, that gave him a, that gave him a distaste for Coca-Cola and banana. Yeah, I can see how. But Nathan, he had to handle it in a way that they wouldn't call the sheriff on him. Exactly. Because yeah. he was some prying busybody that couldn't mind his own business. See, he had to, he had to do that. Mm-hmm. He had he had to manage to not be, I don't want to say found out, but not be not create suspicious and resistance, and then people would talk. Yeah. Now I could tell you how partly how he learned to encourage people to talk. I would love to hear that. Yeah. Well, when he was he went to college, and his parents somehow or the other from the farm they came from, scraped together with all their sons. They sent them to college with two hundred dollars cash and a new suit and a very good academic background for the time. Anyhow, he didn't have any money. He had to make money. And he sold penance for the, this was at the University of North Carolina. He sold penance, P-E-N-N-A-N-T-S, and things like that at football games. And then he realized he could cut hair with a hand clipper. So he had, I guess, a stool and a brush, you know, Mm -hmm. and a hand clipper, and he had a sign uh, and the sign said, haircuts, Arthur Raper's room, room such and such. So yep. he was giving people haircuts. Well, he's told me this a number of times. What do you do when you give somebody a haircut? You chat with them. Yeah. And so he's, he are these people that go into the University of North Carolina from all over, very different people. And he learned to chat with people and get them to talk like you're doing now. Yeah. You know, and only they're not they're there for a haircut. I'm here to talk. <laughs> <laughs> and anyhow, he's he daddy used to say that he had skill in um, in interviewing people casually, yeah, and bring the subject around of what he was interested in. See, and that was the way he learned what he learned about these lynchings. Yeah, and but it was a the tragedy of lynching book was a bombshell in the South uh, because it, it paid some attention to, uh, this would like this would be a little bit like writing a book about what's going on in Auschwitz in Nazi Germany in 1944. Yeah, well that's, that's the thing, I mean, from the parts, I haven't read the whole book. Uh, and, uh, Which book? Tragedy of Lynching. I've read maybe about a third of it. Yeah. Uh, and... It, that's the thing that I found so I found it very frank and very open uh, and I found and it was dealing with stuff that you know you, like you said you know it's like it was like it's something that's going on at the time but yet at the same time you know what was there more controversy to the book at the time it was written than people are well, on now? It, when it was written, nobody could counter it. Mm-hmm. When it was written, it was immediately embraced by the academic world because he jumps through all the proper hoops of criminology. Yeah. Like there's charts in there, there's data in there. And and it's a sociological study of the, of the income and uh, land tenure. Mm-hmm. 
of Greene and Macon counties. Yeah. Uh, which was very two different, very different counties, both in Georgia. Uh, but the difference was between cotton and I think the, between the cotton plantations in Greene County, and I hope I'm right about this, that Macon County had more family farms. Okay. That were doing, a, you know, mixed agriculture. Because that was in the late 20s. Yeah. So anyhow, he, the book came out and it was reviewed all over. It had just the right title, apparently. Yeah. And in his files, which is down at the University of North Carolina, are, I think is a whole bunch of the original reviews all organized into a booklet. Uh, it was reviewed all over and it was uh, accepted as a serious work of criminology. Yeah, I mean, that's how it reads to me, most definitely. I mean, but like I said, it also seems, it, I find it thoroughly, it almost, the way it's written to it almost feels like it could have been written last week, you know, in terms of tone and style. Really? That's, that, that's the way, I mean, it f feels to me. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, like, it's, it's almost like, to me, as far as, like, the process of writing, you know, a, a book like that, that, I mean, no, I don't think anyone's taken it any further, I guess. Is no one is, excuse me? No one's taken it any, like, there is, there has been, like, that's kind of, like, I haven't read any books written earlier than this that deal with stuff in this fashion. Uh -huh. And no one really seems to have done anything beyond, like, what this is in terms of, like, the style of presenting information. Really? Uh, Blake said, I don't know everything, so maybe there's something no, out there I don't know. know. <laughs> but, uh, but that's what I find so shocking. I mean, it seemed like this seems like some... Do you think that there is... Is, is it possibility that, like, there is some sort of northern bias towards southern intellectualism, you know, why this work isn't getting as much attention? Well, as, as here's just be. one little tidbit. I'm going to get into more things than you've even brought up. Just about everything that my father wrote, and you're seeing here a number of his books, mm -hmm. some of which have been reprinted twice because they're used as college texts. That's where you ran into it. Yes. Right? Okay. Um, Nathan, I'm getting old. I forgot. Oh, but yes. I'm going to show you now a booklet of photographs I have. Okay. This is where my father came from. This was his grandfather's house in North Carolina. Yeah. Now, that looks poor. Actually, that was the standard landowner's farm in North Carolina in the tobacco growing area. Yeah. Not, not in the, this was not farther south where they grew cotton. Yeah. Cotton, that's where you get Scarlet O'Hara in the big mansion and the slaves out back. Right, right. These people, his grandfather and that generation did have slaves. Um, but I knew I would get into this. My father was telling me, and he wrote an essay about this somewhere, the difference between cotton culture, cotton agriculture, and tobacco agriculture. With tobacco... Uh, the way they did it, and I can show you here, this this was a tobacco farm, tobacco mm -hmm. barn, B-A-R-N. You see, it was made of logs. Yeah. Chinked together, airtight, and they had a smoky fire down here. 
These, by the way, are the are his grandchildren that smoke. Okay. My wife lined them all up for a picture. <laughs> they were the smokers at the time. That's half of them were smokers. Are they still growing tobacco on this property? No, or? no. Oh, this okay. is in suburban Winston-Salem, and it's all in suburban homes now. Oh, okay. Uh, but this this was his grandfather's farm. You see, it's not a very not a very pretentious house. No, it doesn't have any columns. And only reason it even stands is because it has a tin roof. And this was his, this was his, uh, wait a minute, I'm going to say this again. This was my father's, grandfather's house, and this was his other grandfather's house. Oh, okay. His name was Krause, and, and that's the house they lived in, and we visited that place. And now what I'm looking at is another clapboard house with a tin roof, and uh, it doesn't even have any verandas or anything like that. But uh, I can show you, yes, this is the barn oh, wow. in Grandfather Krause's place. And this was a pole barn, P-O-L-E. See that? Yep. And there were a whole bunch of these houses around around the Krause place that were built this way. But they all have tin roofs on them, so they're mm -hmm. still standing. Uh, I'm sorry, Nathan. I've... Oh, yes. This was not intellectual place to live. Mm -hmm. This was rural North Carolina at the turn of the century when these houses roughly were built. Yeah. And inside this house, by the way, there's a log cabin. This little girl that's standing there told me that. Oh, yeah. This, we have a log logs in our living room, she said. Well, that means they built the house over the log cabin. Over the log cabin. That was a standard way of doing things. Uh, and this is the barn where my father would go out and milk the cow when he was a boy. That was their barn. Yeah. In his father's house, his father's place. But th these were not intellectuals. They were well-read, and they went to high school. Mm -hmm. But I think just about the end of eighth grade, they went to work on the farm. There was no more schooling for them. And my father's family, the rapers of North Carolina, they broke the mold of doing that, and they decided... The soil is running out. Actually, my father's father, whose name was Frank Raper, he decided that this land is wearing out. You're not going to be able to keep maintaining families here. We're going to have to do something else. I'm going to send all of my boys to school, and then they can, uh, they can with a college education, they can get various jobs. Yeah. And I want to tell you, Nathan, that turned out very well. But I'm getting into this because he was... Why did I get into this? What was your question? My, you question uh, my question was more, why you know, why don't more people know about your father's work at this point? Is, and is there a certain... Is there a northern bias against southern intellectuals? Oh, the northern bias? Yes. Well... Singal in this book, The War Within, and there's another one here, Speak Now Against the Day. This is more or less the same idea. This is a book by John Edgerton. Yeah. These came out first, and then the, um, the Mazzari book came out, which is just about Daddy's career. Yeah. But he was, he was definitely a pioneer into being properly trained intellectually, having the... Uh, having the academic 
credentials to make an argument yeah. that did not conform with the romantic view that the South had of itself. Mm-hmm. And that was modernism. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, all this is independent of what the North thinks of the South. Yeah. I think, do I, did I say that right sensibly? I think so, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, because it just seem, it seems like very, I, I don't know, like I said, it's just like it's a, you know, like I said, when, when I was reading the work, it wasn't even necessarily so, like, because one, the material is groundbreaking and, like, revelatory for his time, but also the actual just, his process and how he wrote, I find, is. Well, I've got to throw my mother into this mix, Nathan. Yeah. Because my father came from this very, very rural. Here are the pictures of it. Yeah. This is just plain rural South in the, in the mm-hmm. early 20th century. That's all it is. But my mother came from Methodist preacher background. Mm-hmm. Her, her father was a Methodist preacher in North, North Georgia, we called it. Yeah. And so she grew up with somebody who had gone to seminary, and she saw him at the pulpit every Sunday, and she was a good girl, and uh, and so she had grown up with proper English. Yeah. Where and she, she knew what proper English was. She knew what the right phrases were and all that. My father didn't, and he, I never heard him say them there. But there were just a few things he said that I would say revealed his rural background. Yeah. Uh, I didn't want to say betrayed his rural background yeah, yeah. because he never apologized for it. Mm-hmm. But look, I want to show you a picture. This is, this is my father and one, two, three, four brothers yeah. and, and sister and two more brothers came along. Mm-hmm. And here they all are, except one, at their mother's funeral. Yeah. And just to show how well my, my grandfather Raper's uh, project of sending his boys to college worked out, yeah. every one of these people graduated, all these men and this woman graduated from college from yeah. a tobacco farm. Yeah. The one exception was Uncle Luther, not Luther, I forget which one it was. One of these men flunked economics. Okay. But he went to work for a building and loan, yeah. and he ended up being head of the building and loan. Yeah. So I guess he's, he knew how to do his math. Yeah. <laughs> but she was a teacher, and look what, look, look what they have hanging down in front of them. See, this is a very formal portrait. Okay. What do you suppose those shiny things are? I want to say they're pocket watches, but they I can't are Phi Beta Kappa keys, and you better believe oh, it. Okay. And this woman told me when she was quite elderly, <laughs> she said, "My brothers are making sure everybody sees their Phi Beta Kappa keys." <laughs> gotcha. But in this family, with its totally rural Southern background, mm-hmm. all of this generation went to college, and they all had jobs appropriate to. A college degree yeah for the mid mid for the early 20th century just for instance he was a bureaucrat in Washington DC this is my father yeah. with his PhD in these books uh, this is uh, that was Ralph 
This is Uncle Kenneth, and he is the man who discovered the strain of mold that is used all over the world now to grow penicillin. Oh, really? Yes, he, he did the study for penicillin. He, his graduate students found the mold that generated yeah. the, uh, in 1942, they had to find a mold that would generate a lot of penicillin, not just little bits. They needed yeah. a lot. Well, he discovered a mold that grew like a skyscraper. Right. And uh, he built his career on that as a whatever a penicillin scientist is. Yeah. And this is Uncle John, the youngest of these boys, and he was a Harvard professor. And he did studies for the, for the Roosevelt administration about the effects of ionizing radiation on, on living things. He yeah. had no idea why they were interested in that. But that was but part that of the Manhattan Project. Manhattan Project yeah. he, he worked on that. And, and uh, all of these guys had good careers. In, and she was a teacher mm -hmm. and a mother. Here they are in 1965, most of them. So that was a big, a big accomplishment. And they were breaking the mold. Yeah. These, these guys could just as well have begun, been hillbillies with their background. Mm -hmm. You know, but they came from stable family. Uh, they they all did their homework and they all stayed sober. Yeah. And these things make a big difference over the generations. Yeah. Well, um, I'm sorry. I'm always straying, Nathan. That's all right. That's actually that's very that is very interesting as well. Um, so. Uh, what? Oh, here's something else I want to say. Sure. Mother came from the educated, uh, well, ministers. Ministers mm -hmm. are all educated. And, and they're responsible members of the community. And they're generally sober. Yeah. They better be. <laughs> particularly in the South. Anyhow, that was her background. That's who she grew up with. And she helped Daddy write his books. Now, the preface to Peasantry is here, and yep. uh, a Tragedy of Lynching is here, and there's Sharecroppers All, and there's Tenants of the Almighty. Yeah. And all those, those four books, I bet Mother sat down and went over every sentence with him, and they talked about how this part of the book is going to read. Now, get this, Nathan. They were writing for a Southern reader. Mm -hmm. They were trying to persuade Southern whites... Yeah. About trying to inform them about what's going on around them because things were really a disaster down there. Yeah. But in the rural South, which was, ugh. Uh, anyhow, that's what they were doing. But you don't convince people by making them so mad at you they stomp out. Exactly. Or, or throw the book down. Mm -hmm. You don't want to, you want to keep them engaged and work some information in there. And persuasion, perhaps. Yeah. But mostly it's information and the academic correctitude, the linguistic, the proper, like you noticed, the proper language. That's good English, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So was your uh, mom his editor at times too, or? She was there. I would say she was his editor almost all the time. Yeah. Uh, he would trust her. To correct for the things that he just didn't know about about grammar, 
Right. They weren't very many, but anyhow, and she would be the typist mm -hmm. and the proofreader. And she got involved in all that. Yeah. And but Nathan, she couldn't get credit for it. Yeah. Because almost all of this was government. I'm so glad to tell somebody this. All of this work was government-sponsored, government-paid for, yeah. you know, studied. Like the uh, Tenants of the Almighty was written for the Department of Agriculture mm -hmm. to report on how their farm projects were working out down in, in uh, rural South. Yeah. You know, to evaluate projects and how are they working and all that. And that was government-funded. And you know who funds the government is Congress. Well, does Congress know all about nepotism? You know that word? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, you bet they know about nepotism because they practice it themselves, <laughs> but they don't want anybody else to right. because that blows up in their face. So she could not be credited other than as a kind of a helpmate. Right. But in fact, she helped write the books. Yeah. And I would say particularly in this business of having the persuasive and informative and not abrasive tone. Yeah. And it's dealing with some pretty, you know, heavy, awful stuff. I've never thought of this before, Nathan, specifically, but I think in metaphors. Suppose you were in Nazi Germany and you wanted to do a study of the survival rates of of people in Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. Well, how much? How could you do that? I don't know. I don't think the Nazis would put up with it for a second. No. But this, but this, and this wasn't nearly that oppressive, and not nearly that cruel, and not nearly that yeah. uh, massively uh, one. Not, I don't want to say one-sided. Um, they didn't have anything as bad as the SS involved or right. the Nazis. But the rural South had had a terrible, you've seen Gone with the Wind? Uh, yeah. You know how Gone with the Wind and the next, the whole movie, you still see little tidbits of the status of the black people mm -hmm. in the South at that time. And the status of the black people was raised very little by the Civil War. Technically they were free, but in fact they were re-enslaved as, as what the communists call wage slaves. Yes. And the communists, of course, made the most of that, too. And uh, so mother and daddy were, were trying to give voice to this information and make people realize what was happening and maybe believe in themselves and see a way out. Mm -hmm. And, of course, politics. Very much, very, very much involved. Yeah. I'll quit. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, it's, I, I think it's just, uh, that's what I, I guess, one of the things that really challenged what I thought about the, or I guess, or what I found particularly inspiring about it was the fact that they were able to make people listen, you know. Well, I hope they're ghosts, I hope they're listening. Yeah. And uh, why wouldn't they be listening if they could and care to? But the, uh, their whole objective <clears throat> was to keep the readers involved mm -hmm. in this book. Keep them reading this book and keep them uh, learning about what was going on here. Yeah. 
Now, I, I don't have tenets of the Almighty here, do I? Wait a minute. What's this book? That's it. Can you get that? Yep. I can't quite reach it. I just bumped the microphone. That's all right. All right. Now, this is a little story about me because this book was published in 1940. Well, let's see. I'll find a date. Nineteen forty-three. Mm -hmm. Yes, this is when I was eleven years old. Macmillan published this book. Yeah. And uh, I, this book was written on our dining room table, right in the middle of the family. Yeah. And I want to show you pictures, because this is exactly what Greene County looked like. This is what it looked like when we were living there. Here's the river, the Oconee River. Yeah. It was red with mud, which is common in the South. This is not a colored picture, but that would be yeah. red. And the, by the way, the format of this book, first of all, there's about uh, the first fifth of the book is pictures with captions. Yeah. And, it, and it's called book one, If You Like Your Story Short. That's amazing. And it starts out with a picture of Indian artifacts and a, and a log cabin that was still standing at that time. See, there's a log uh -huh. cabin. And this is the remnants of after the Civil War. This was <coughs> Mercer University. That's how yeah. rich the place was before the boll weevil hit. And here's a Civil War monument. And this was in our backyard mm -hmm. where we, we lived in a uh, kind of a plantation with a house that had been around the turn, built around the turn of the century. And that... Uh, pole with the bell at the top was in our backyard. Look at the fields. That's pretty poor, isn't it? Yeah. All right. Now, this house that we're looking at here is almost a shack, isn't it? Yeah. Well, my father bought this place and 160 acres behind it for about $3 an acre in about 1942. Mm -hmm. And that was his place. The family that was living there stayed there until they died and they, I don't think they paid hardly any rent yeah but they were just there and that be there and there's another picture of what that house was like this was the kind of agriculture we had it's one horse agriculture yeah and people with hoes this picture shows a big beautiful oak tree with a cabin behind it the cabin is up on sort of propped up with uh, rocks yeah and I'll show you later the picture. Man, that was a modern tractor at the time. And this is what was happening in Greene County. Now, what are you looking at? The my, If I had to guess, I would say erosion from overuse. And you betcha. It washes, the water would wash This is away. subsoil. Yeah. This is, it's a gully. And behind it is a collapsing cabin yeah. of sorts. And then the other picture has a really, really deep gully, about eight feet deep. But what's growing down there? It's a some sort of tree. But it's a pine what. tree. Okay. It's a Georgia pine. It is a, just remember that. Okay. And back of it is a is a house that is unpainted, and sort of beginning to fall apart. And uh, let's see. These really, really good pictures taken by yeah. government photographers. 
people that in, in beat up old clothes working hard and using wagons yeah. and horses. And uh, now, this is, the, this is the state of things before the government came in. Yeah. And that's a, what we, we would call a government house. Yeah. Look how poor the ground is. Yeah. Right. This isn't a farm. Now, here's a before and after. This is that farm my father bought, my parents yeah. bought. And this is what that house was like at the time, and that was the back porch. And it was changed to this. Mm -hmm. The government uh, made a loan of about maybe $800 was forwarded, uh, and with that loan you could fix up the house. Okay, now maybe I better quit. Oh, all right, I remember this family. These were the Brooks children, and one of these boys, that one was my contemporary, and this was my brother Charlie's contemporary, mm -hmm. and we didn't pay attention to the girls. But this is five children sitting in a very rough house, Yeah, and that is the heat for the house, that fireplace. <coughs> and some of the clothes look homemade, Mm -hmm. But that was the way, and these are whites. Yeah. These are poor whites. But can you see a photograph of a soldier somewhere on the wall? I can't tell. Oh, yeah. Well, there's guys on horses in that one. Well, the whole family listens to the battery radio, and their son, Franklin, is in the Army somewhere in the Pacific. Oh, so this would have been... World War II. This was about 1940, 1941, when okay. this picture of this family. And they, believe me, they have on their best clothes. Yeah. The boys have on classic overalls uh, with, with bib overalls. Yep. With the strap over their shoulder. That was standard for boys. And here's a, a these, these people work in a mill. And this is the way the blacks lived. Yeah. Now, what do you see, Nathan? Uh, I mean, the floor, I can see, like, the ground, you know, through the cracks in the yeah, floor. cracks in, the, it's a wide open floor. Where's the foundation? Yeah, there isn't one. There isn't one. I mean, it's, you know. It looks like flies could get in everywhere. Yeah. And uh, this is probably the kitchen of the house. I mean, there is a screen. Yeah. Well, there, there's a screen for sure. And the pump. And these are modern things that are happening now. Yeah. This is the kind of improvements. There's a shows a woman here with about 500 uh, jars of vegetables that she carried in front of her. Yeah. And she's black. And there's another picture of a white woman sitting in front of a whole cabinet full of jars of food. And this is the, uh, the fact that this boy here has some good food to eat and a glass of milk. Was a real social accomplishment. Yeah. Now I don't. I want to stop now. I don't think there's anything. Well, there's a picture here of the cotton mill, and individuals, a whole line of women working in the cotton mill. Yeah. And then there was a strike, because it was non-unionized. <clears throat> and uh, Daddy made sure that there were pictures of prominent. These are really prominent people in town, yeah. in the, in the county seat. I think he was the uh, superintendent of schools. Mm -hmm. And there's a picture here of a man named Hank McGimini, with Casey Williams. He's sitting at a linotype machine, yeah. creating with hot lead, 
Yeah. An editorial <laughs> for his uh, magazine. And okay, these are these people are the owners of the mill. So they were relatively wealthy. The farm, the churches were like this, and I think I can show you the church that we attended. This was the condition of a of a plantation house yeah. 50, 70 years after the Civil War, 90 years after the Civil War. It's, right. it's kind of crumbling. And uh, let's see. And it ends up with two hopeful pictures. Yeah. Okay, now why on earth did I? All right, so that's that's that was a pictures. That's a yeah. picture story. And it ends up being hopeful and the government's helping. Right. And then we get here a history of all this. And in the back is a, a number of documents. And well, this isn't a chart, it's a, well, this is the appendix and it has statistics yeah. and comparisons and the value of the cotton crop this and that year. And the types of goods canned by FSA clients, that's Farm Security Administration, and the names of the largest canners, school buildings, school teachers, blah, blah, yeah. and an index. But he did, this is a, a rather scholarly presentation. Oh, now, totally. here's, but there's something else about this book that I only became aware of a year ago. Okay. There's a poem, and it's in here. I want to show it to you, and then I'm going to recite it. Yes. Uh, I'll recite you the last verse of this poem from memory. We are tenants of the Almighty, entrusted with a portion of his earth to dress and keep and pass on to the next generation till the evening come and we fall asleep. Did I get it right? And we must fall asleep. Yeah. Okay, that's part of a poem that somebody wrote and mother and daddy learned about her she was the cleaning woman for our church uh -huh. our really poor Methodist church that we attended and she also worked as a cleaning woman for someone we knew but she would write a poem if you asked her to mm -hmm. and uh, this is a little biography of her and it's in the appendix, back where I never read anything. Right. It's on page 376. Is a little three-quarters of a page biography of Louisiana Dunn Thomas, Negro farm tenant mother of Siloam, Georgia. And her poems, mm -hmm. which are really good. Yeah. But this is sort of lurking in the back of the book for people to discover. Mm -hmm. And I think I remember Mother and Daddy talking about, we will put her in the book, but in the appendix where it won't be noticed, <laughs> <Right>. which is exactly how it worked for me. See? Yeah. Okay. But yet it's the title of the book as well. Yes. This is also engraved on their tombstone. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, Nathan. <clears throat> you want to take a break? or No, no, no. I'm, I'm all right. Okay. So what else? Um, so that what they were doing was trying to 
inform their contemporaries, white Southerners, those that could read, which was more and more of them as time went well, mm -hmm. they're trying to inform them of what's going on and make things begin to change. Yeah. And when civil rights came along, they never went to any of those demonstrations or anything. Mm -hmm. That was a whole nother generation that was yeah. doing that. So um, how much of this were you aware of at the time it was going on when you were growing up? All of it. <clears throat> I grew up right in the middle of it. Did they ever, I mean, was this the sort of thing that they would get frustrated with? Oh, they would sigh. Yeah. But what they were digging, they were helping the South dig itself out of a big, deep hole. Mm -hmm. Really. And uh, any improvement was an improvement, and they were happy to participate in it. Yeah. And uh, well, what else can I say? This was a conscious effort to, to, to keep their audience through the books. Yeah. And through their lifestyle. Mm -hmm. You know, mother was always a good Methodist. Mm -hmm. And daddy was a pretty good Methodist. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, he'd been grown up Methodist slash... Uh, Moravian and mother was flat out Methodist. There's never any talk about attending any of church, any yeah. other church, or not attending church. And mother didn't know anything else to do anyhow but be a good church going person. Yeah, that was ingrained. Just mm -hmm. like your mother doesn't know anything else to do but not steal things when she goes into a store. Right. She just wouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, uh, so you they had the you had the in the South in Greene County where they lived. Yeah. They, uh, and before that in the South, it wasn't so hard in Virginia, <coughs> but they had that uh, fine line to walk of being liberal and being what we call progressive. Yeah. Uh, but not being viewed as an enemy. Yeah. By the your surrounding, it's very, very much like very, I think, really, it's it's an overdrawn metaphor, I know, but living with Nazi Germany yeah. and seeing what can you do mm -hmm. even though you stay in Nazi Germany. Yeah. This wasn't nearly that bad. No, but I mean, from what you've told me, it seems like your uh, parents were pretty strongly self-identified with the South and they saw things they wanted yes. to change. yes. And but they loved it and wanted to stay there and fix it as opposed to go somewhere else where they... Well, the farthest north they ever moved was, was northern Virginia, right next yeah. to Washington, D.C. And they moved where Dad's job was. Yeah. And and uh, I don't think they didn't want to move by the time. Well, they, he bought a real nice place in Fairfax County. And uh, he wanted to, they wanted to live there. Yeah. Mother would have been a little happier in a more urban environment. But yeah. she put up with it. Because he need he really needed it. What made you decide to leave the South? Jobs. Jobs. No, but no, I really never wanted to live any farther south. We were in Washington, right? Yeah. Uh, but I was there because my my uh, position in the Air Force Band was in Washington. But I never even thought about moving south. Mm -hmm. I don't like the heat. It's terrible, awful yeah, hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really hot. Even up here it gets hot, and we're in Maine now. 
yeah. northern Maine. Um, but they they thought of themselves as Southerners. Now, do you consider yourself a Southerner? No, but Nathan, and I love to talk Southerner. Well, I didn't realize I I didn't notice that you actually even had an accent when I was younger, and I'm realizing it more now. Well, we came here from Philadelphia. Yeah. From suburbs of Philadelphia, and. Uh, but it's only certain words, you know. Yeah, just well, that that give it away. Mm-hmm. But occasionally, I get on the phone with somebody like there's a lady I I call at the at a bureaucrat in Washington. I call her about about electrical details of something. And she's very southern, and I enjoy talking to her. Yes, she's southern, and uh, no, I never wanted to move. Now, this book I'm showing you, this was this is unpublished. Oh, but this is something that was put together. Oh, the the door. Never mind. This is something that was put together. Of various writings, mostly about when we were for two years living in Greene County, mm-hmm. and it's about when we were living where all those pictures I showed you were. Yeah, and it has it has. Uh, well, uh, Nathan, I'll read it to you, and I don't know whether you want to use this or not in your radio program. But this just shows you where Mother was at. Okay, and I want to see if I can find it. All of this is what she remembered. Yeah, let's see. This. That looks like that's was that drawn in you know from is this book about Asia or No, no. Okay. Yes, the last half of it is about Asia. Okay. The first half of it is about when we were in Greene County. And this this is page 119 of something called Living and Dying in Greene County, which mother wrote. And um, so it starts out, one day Annie Mae, that's one of our, one of our, one of the black people that lived near us, mm-hmm. asked me to take her to the doctor. She had fewer, and she had a fever and felt bad, mouth was all sore, that she got ready and we went. I put her out in, and she doesn't say where, and didn't go in with her because I didn't want Dr. So-and-so thinking, every time he sees me, here comes Mrs. Rayford with another sick nigger. Yeah. Niggers in quotes. So I drove on over to somebody else's house and visited with her a few minutes and came back to Annie Mae. She got in and we drove toward home. What did he say was the matter? He say my general condition, bad. What did he say do? He told me to get this and take a spoonful after every meal. It was a white, sodary power flavored with licorice or paragoric, and it cost 75 cents. Multiply that by 20. Mm-hmm. So, besides the dollar for the doctor, that's what the doctor charged. Did he take your temperature and look in your throat? No, I just told him my mouth was sore, and to- he told me to guess this. He didn't do nothing. Now, this is kind of long, Nathan. Do you have time for it? Just yeah, whatever you, whatever you want to tell me. So I felt very cross with Dr. So-and-so, and I got quite mad about it. And the more I thought about Annie May's $1.75 and my time in the gasoline, and him not even looking at her throat, 
What we need around here, says Mrs. Raper in her wrath, she's talking to herself, is some doctors that are scientific to know that black skin isn't catching. You know that. Yeah. But that was a revolutionary thing to say in 1941. Some doctors aren't that aren't afraid to touch a, quote, nigger, or some good young colored doctors. Well, I got quite indignant about it, and I helped bring in that first, and that helped bring on a fierce outbreak of hives the next week or so. But maybe Dr. So-and-so knew what he was doing after all. At any rate, Annie may get, may get well quite soon and was criticized by Robert's relatives for wasting his money running to the doctor when she wasn't sick. Maddie Lou always has it in for her, though, and talks against her to Robert. She mother got involved in the internal workings of local black families. Yeah. Tells, she tells Robert she's just putting on sick. She knew that Annie Mae was just putting on to feel bad after this last one was born. Old Preacher, that was a very old uh, black man lived up the way, has it in for him and Annie Mae too. He told me she was just not honest, but she doesn't take things from me. He is always slurring at her. By the taking things from me, that means taking things out of our house. Yeah. Because you're in the house as a servant. Mm-hmm. When he came, Annie Mae was a cowed, guilty look, so I thought maybe she was a weak sister. But I didn't treat her so, but treated her with respect and kindness, and she has come out quite a lot. She holds her head up and looks, and her look is straighter. She still uses that awful, slurring, slovenly way of talking. Lily says her mother talked that way. I think that helps folk look down on her. She treats her little daughter mighty bad, speaks ugly to her, like she's no good and got no sense. It is hard to get a smile out of the child. Lily says several Annie Mae's family have these same dull eyes that never light up. But I am hoping she can he be brought out, but by whom? And that was written in May 10th, 1941, which was my ninth birthday. Yeah. Now, here's the thing I really wanted to read to you, but that gives you the context yeah. of the way people were living. Mm-hmm. The black people around us who had practically no jobs. The trouble with the things in this world is not that they are material and temporal only. They are also dangerous because they involve other people, other people's time and work, other people's rights, other people's incomes, other people's privileges, and they are on the edge of that essential matter of essential equality among men. So when something has happened, it's not easy to find out what happened. No one, no use trying to find out by asking. Wait till it comes out naturally. Then you will come nearer knowing what to believe. Yes is the only word it is polite for a Negro to say to a white person. Now, if black had been proper, she would have written black. Right. But Negro was the, no, pro- no, yeah, that's, that's the proper the, term at the, the time. time. And... If nigger is in this, it's always in quotes. The lying, and there's plenty of it, really comes on, comes not out of the Negro himself, but out of the fundamental untruth in the black-white relationship as it is at present. The lie to me still when they know I want to be their friend, but the past is still living in our minds. Their childhood remains as it was. All their experience is the same as it was. 
and only that small bit that concerns certain strangers who have come on so very recently, only that small bit is different. She's talking about herself and, and our father. And these strangers will soon go away. We did. And it will be the same again. Even that small bit will be gone, and the vast undone will keep on happening in the regular patterns as it is right now. Now that's an expression of the, of the mess that the poor blacks and poor whites to some extent in the South were in. Yeah. Uh, if things should ever go to pieces here in a civil war or a breakdown of civilization, there is an awful accumulation of wrong and bitterness that will well up from underneath where it stays now, suppressed by fear and partly controlled by the natural goodness that is in people. There was a lot of that. <clears throat> I would say that there still is. Oh, yes. But if the lid is taken off suddenly, there will be hell to pay, and a just debt it will be too, though little good will come it from the paying of it in that way. Blood will run, and women will have cause to scream, and their screams will be smothered. And property will not be safe at all, and the steadier blacks will bemoan, bemoan the dimension of their brothers, but will stand helpless to stop them. And it will get us too, she means us whites, mm -hmm. for all we have tried to make things better. And I think that was, it might have gone that way, Nathan, but it didn't. And I hope I will not be bitter whatever is done to anyone I love or to me, for it has been stored up for so long and so terribly against us. The us she's using is the whites. Mm -hmm. So terribly, all that, no, yeah, so terribly. All this misery and want and lack of self-respect will come out in awful ways. I hope I can prepare the children for it so they won't be bitter whatever happens. And whichever one survive can help rebuild a better world after the air clears. After all, I had assumed we would be murdered by the turning worm as some foreign enemy or worse yet, some narrow American fascist with no room in his heart for a big God, a big world and big humanity. Let us pray. And then there's a postscript. Maybe we can try hard now to ease up the pressure and misery and help people understand what it is that they are doing to each other. Then they'll want to do differently. Quote, they know not what they do. Close quote. They have closed their minds because they are afraid. Their uneasy consciences make them afraid and they don't know it. Now that's the end of, of and that was uh, April and May of 1941 and in uh, wait a minute, because a year later we moved away. Okay. So she wrote this one, this part of her impressions of this poor part of the county that where we were living. So how come they never published that book? Well, it almost got published. Uh, some some uh, people who might have published a book sent around to readers. Yeah. And the readers didn't like it. They said it lacks a clear voice, meaning who is doing the talking. It came. It was written to come out of the whole family. Yeah. And that's a pretty clear voice. I th well, that is. That's just her. Yeah. And and there were people for a while, Nathan, that were very interested in getting this published.
but they couldn't talk to the publishers have to make an investment yes to publish a book oh yeah and maybe maybe this could be put on the internet if it were if it were um i never even thought of that but uh, you, you could do a facsimile on the internet yeah, or e like ebook publishing is pretty. You know, you can self-publish fairly easily. Now, oh you yes, want. yeah. You could, you could put it on Twitter, not Twitter. Uh, YouTube. Yeah, or, or Am Amazon or uh, something like yeah. that. But anyhow, anyhow, this was just a statement from what became, in retrospect, a really uh, uh, center of a life experience. Mm -hmm. And yet the people were living there all the time. They're still there. You know, they're, yeah. Their children are still there. Yeah. What do you think your dad would say about like the modern Tea Party movement? Because isn't that a lot of the, the I think he'd the say they're not people? really. They're really not very well informed. They're plenty mad. Well, yeah. Well, that goes back to like in the, one of the things I found very interesting in the tragedy of lynching was the way he talked about how like the mentality of mobs and how they worked. Yes, and the and the mob mentality was more or less in charge of things in the rural South. Yeah. At that time, and you see a touch of that even in the, what was that movie where they run around away from the sheriff all the time, uh, driving big. Big cars trying to get away from the sheriff and make Smokey and the Bandit. That yeah, that kind of thing. Okay. There was that sort of attitude, uh, but also the people that were the sheriff, the chief of police, and the mayor and the chamber of commerce were all supporting the status quo. Yeah. Which you would expect, and the status quo did not include poor whites and did not include all of the blacks. Yeah. Now, Nathan, I want to show you one more thing. Okay. <clears throat> now, where is it? Oh. I thought I brought it down. I thought I brought it down here. Uh, well, my father wrote a, an essay about what was happening in the South and about all the people that were heading for, like, Chicago, where they could get work. Yeah. And a lot of them were poorly educated black people. And he just asked a rhetorical question. What effect will this have on the haven cities of the North? Well, we know what effect it had on the haven cities of the North. <coughs> it destroyed them, you know. How so? The well, have you ever seen West Philadelphia? You've heard of Harlem. You've heard there yep. was not L.A. South L.A. Yeah, there are areas down there you wouldn't set foot in. Mm -hmm. Isn't that right? Not so much now, but at, really? at a time, yeah. Okay. Like, uh, but that's hard to say. I mean. Some of that's because of gentrification. Some of it's because uh, South Central LA is an area. There's some areas I might not step into, but like, uh, like Harlem, that's something I you know walk through without 
really. I mean, there's some tension there, you know, and there there are. But I mean, like probably in the '60s and '70s and '80s. Yes. Well, I'm yeah. Lot, I'm thinking. Yeah. But 30, that's, 40 years ago, yeah. 60 years ago, uh, that was when the impact was so strong. Well, actually, that because that was going to be the next question I was going to ask you. Oh, good. Because uh, one guy said, um, I don't have the exact quote for me, but basically your father said something to the effect of, basically, the city folk would be the new type of sharecropper, all the risk with no ownership. Which were people moving to the factories and working in the urban factories and stuff. Yes, and they have to pay rent. And they have yeah. to buy everything. They they can't grow any. They have to buy, purchase everything, mm-hmm. retail, and not from a chain store because the chain stores are off somewhere else. Yeah. So, so they you have think to pay. that did come to pass? Largely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I found that very, you know, forward. And they consider and that normal. Yeah. You have to have a job that will support you, which means a job that will pay you enough to pay the rent mm-hmm. and the medical expenses and the dental expenses and all that. You don't have to have a car, actually, but most people manage. Yeah. Um, well, I think you pretty much answered all my questions. Really? This. Yeah. Um, I'm not exactly 100% sure I'm going with all this, and I'll tell you why. Uh, I'm trying to, my mission in this, what I'm doing, and I'm working on this show with a friend of mine that uh, I went to college with. And I find a lot of informational stuff, people come at it with what they, they ask people questions based on what they want to write about. And they write the story based on what their preconceived notion of something is. I think that's inevitable, Nathan. I know, but I'm trying. What I'm trying to do is let the story take me to where it it, it tells itself, and I'm trying to avoid putting too much. So I'm not exactly sure, but I mean, I think my my main thing that has been very, like said very inspiring to me is like the fact that they were actually able to convince people, and they're they're and and that and you know learning more that your mom was more involved in this is quite interesting as well. But she, because of the nepotism problem mm-hmm. in the federal government, she couldn't be given credit for it. But uh, one of the last books was funded by the Ford Foundation, and yeah. she did get credit in that yeah. book. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, that's the sort of, like the sort of idea of like, you find out what happens, and you tell a, you try to figure out why these, you know, whatever this thing may be but like you know I want to tell people stories about interesting things that they should know about but without necessarily pushing my agenda on top of it yeah well I think you're a natural born reporter I'm finding that I, I am more than I thought I was uh-huh. maybe. Um, to even be aware of this yeah well it's curious to me and I want to tell I want to tell the stories that I want to read and because a lot of times I listen to stuff and I was like, well, what about this? How come they didn't tell me about X? And I was like, well, you know, that's just me being lazy. That means I have to go ask that question and find it out. So that's kind of where I'm, what, where I'm going with it. Yeah. Well, that's a very, and it, this is not directly involved in your work at all. 
No. Something you want to do. Yes. Boy, I was thinking when you retire, just think of how much time you can <laughs> devote to this. You can go around talking to people. <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, and I also, like I said, uh, it's, this whole thing was a surprise to me, like, that, like, you had this story to tell, and I, you know, had no idea um, about all of it, and, you know, well, I think that this is, these are important stories to share. Here's one more little, little story. Uh, one of the things Daddy did, because he was a known sociologist and all that, and he knew, the, he knew people in the South. You ever hear of Gunnar Myrdal? I don't think so. He was a Swede, and he wrote a book called An American Dilemma. Oh, I have heard of that book, but yes. I have not read it. Well, that's about racism in the United States. And he went to visit the South, and Daddy was sort of assigned to show him around. Yeah. Well, now, and this story is in one of these books somewhere. It's chronicled, but he was showing Myrdal around, and Myrdal had a a Swedish accent, but he spoke English. And so they were down in the Atlanta area, and Myrdal had been with somebody, and then Daddy drove him, and they went to Southern Greene County to a chain gang camp. And Daddy and Myrdal and the head of the camp and a couple of other people sat down at white tablecloth with china to have dinner. And in the next room, the chain gang men were all eating the same food from tin cups. <laughs> right. So that was the situation. And they were really right there in the middle of it. I've seen chain gangs, just like you'd expect it would be. Anyhow, somebody came in, and they, somebody came in suddenly and said, Raper, you better take this Swede fellow and get out of the state quick. Uh, Mrs., and I'm going to make up the name now because I've forgotten, Mrs. Thomas has got a warrant sworn out for him. <coughs> so they got in the, in the car and drove halfway across the state to Alabama. Mm -hmm. And on the way, Daddy heard what had happened. Uh, Myrdal had been interviewing this very, very uh, well-connected white woman in Atlanta and he had asked, she had been carrying on about how bad, the, and she, I'm sure we use the term niggers, how bad the niggers are and you can't trust them and they're all inclined to crime, blah, 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 and so on, and how it wasn't safe for a white woman to walk on the street. Why, you wouldn't believe it, Mr. Myrdal, it happens all the time. Yeah. <coughs> and so Mr. Myrdal, playing the game of the innocent foreigner, said, oh, Mrs. Smith, have you been attacked by a Negro? Or maybe he said raped. And that was the end of the interview. Mm -hmm. He'd gone too far. Mm -hmm. He figured that's what had happened, and that is what happened. <coughs> so she called up somebody she knew who called the judge and had this warrant sworn out. And they took off for the Alabama border where the state thing would not catch him. Mm -hmm. Because <coughs> the last thing they wanted was an international incident because yeah. he had insulted a white woman. Now this goes back to the tragedy of lynching, lynching because one of the key things that happened after that book came out 
with some association of Southern white women supported that book and said that the, the whole business about black men raping white women is a myth. It's still around, too, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's pretty alive today. So, he, But Daddy felt like he felt the stormtroopers were breathing down their necks when they, yeah. <coughs> when they made that trip. That's, that's where things were at, and that's what the power structure could do. Yeah. Well. Well, that's a, that I thank you so much for sharing this with me. I really appreciate we it. We had to do it. There's probably more, Nathan. <laughs> yeah. But that's enough. <laughs> um, yeah, no. Thank you so much. Yeah.